this is Max Rivlin-Nadler, and you're listening to the Full Stop Podcast. As always, we'd like to thank our Patreon supporters for making this possible, and receiving the perk of getting this episode a bit earlier than our other listeners. Full Stop relies on your support to flourish and grow. We're working on a ton of new and interesting projects, so your support is going a long way. And as always, directly to the writers and artists who make Full Stop possible. Thank you so much. Our website continues to be updated multiple times a week with reviews, essays, and interviews, so please check it out. In addition, we've been featuring some really great stuff in our blog section lately with original designs, giving our website a whole different look. Some recent experiences there include a dive into the game Hard Lads, which includes men beating each other with chairs and those chairs then ascending into heaven. Another blog experience includes women and odors, and a typewritten section on Alexander Thoreau's in adultery. Essentially what I'm saying is you gotta check it out to actually understand it, because the section is both fun to read and look at, which is pretty rare on the uniform internet these days. This month on the podcast, we're featuring a few full-stop editors, including myself, discussing the future of travel writing. As the worst wave of the pandemic continues to batter America, the idea of a reopened world seems very far off. But this gives us some time to reconceive travel writing, its pitfalls, and what might come after the pandemic, if there really is an after. Welcome to the Full Stop Editor's Roundtable. Joining us, we have... Nabil Kashuk. I'm the Digital Scholarship Librarian over at Swarthmore College, and uh, I am a Full Stop Fellow for this year, um, this very lovely and strange year. Um, and from Full Stop, we have... Michael Shapira, the Interviews Editor and Interviews Editor for Full Stop. And Helen Stewart-Romarim, Features Editor. So like I said in the introduction, today we are talking about travel writing, uh, which is um, extremely unimportant unimportant right now, um, all things considered in the way that the the world is spinning, but is, you know, something of interest nonetheless, because if we're going to kind of move forward, uh, there's going to be probably a new type of travel writing. And uh, we're seeing a lot of travel restrictions across the globe right now that is drawing out different um, privileges and kind of um, impressions that people have of, of other nations. Uh, I live here along the border between San Diego and Tijuana, and it's uh, devolved in some really ugly and uh, discriminatory stuff. Uh, but just to kick us off, Helen and Mike, you were living in Russia right when uh, COVID hit, right? So um, take me through basically what happened in terms of, you know, what were you doing there? And then how quickly did you have to escape? Yeah, so we, we were there. I was there doing research for my PhD in Russian literature um, and working in the libraries and archives in Moscow. And Mike was teaching at university. Um, and I, I was on a Fulbright fellowship, which is, you know, organized by the State Department. And so we get a lot of communication from the embassy there and I guess you know over the kind of early weeks of March there were a lot of um, you know gradually things started to, to sort of there was like you're not allowed to come into the country if you're coming from Spain or from you're not allowed to come into the country if you're coming from Italy you're not allowed to come into the country if you're coming from the UK. And, but meanwhile, the COVID cases in Russia that were being reported were like one a day, one a day, two a day, three a day. And it seemed like, and I mean, nothing, you know, it just didn't seem like it was happening there, actually. It seemed like the level, the cases were really low. And it was kind of unclear what, I mean, you know, at that time it was like really unclear what was going to happen. So anyway, um, like in the middle of March, I got an email from Fulbright that was like pretty out of the blue, just like your Fulbright's over, you should go home, but you don't have to go home, but we really encourage you to go home. Um, So 
Maybe I'll, I'll let Mike take over telling the story from this stage. <laughs> All right. Um, so Helen and I were, uh, were living in different parts of Russia. I was in a town called Tumim, which is in western Siberia, um, so just over the Ural Mountains, and uh, solid... What, western 30... Siberia is like where you want to be. That's the sweet spot, yeah. The, the closer to the Urals, the better. Um, and as Helen said, it was a bit unclear what was going on in Russia because access to information is, you know, complicated there. And I was in a slightly different position from Helen because I don't really speak the language. Um, so there's, there's holy fools in Russian literature and there are Amerikansky duraks, idiot Americans who <laughs> don't really know what's going on. So from my perspective, I was sort of blissfully unaware that there was this pandemic unfolding. I had this uh, very intense teaching job and was just trying to keep my head above water doing that. But Helen sort of kept telling me that the government was essentially telling her to come home and they're going to shut down travel soon. And I was like, well, that can't be, you know, I went to the gym. Uh, everyone here is, you know, still doing selling fruit and vegetables on the street. I don't see any masks or anything. Uh, but Helen pushed up her visit to come visit me. And over the course of a week, we decided to go home after I listened in on some of these conversations with Fulbright and the American government. Um, during this week, it's really a good thing that we decided to go and we did. My university insanely held a conference, uh, mostly with people coming from Western Europe. And quite predictably, when someone returned home, they tested positive for COVID, informed the local health, health authorities in, in Tumim after informing the university. And um, anyways, I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment. But So we, we left in very short order. Uh, we packed up my apartment left on a Wednesday night, arrived in Moscow, packed up Helen's apartment, and left Russia Thursday afternoon. Um, it was a very weird experience traveling during that time. This is like March 18th, 19th, something like that. So really the height of height of it. And also just, again, in this haze of, of weird information. So half the plane was wearing masks, half weren't. Uh, we weren't, but we had, you know, Purell or whatever to wipe things down. We weren't wearing masks because, like, the CDC and every all the American news was like, don't wear masks, it makes no difference. We were like, we're not going to wear masks, those chubs wearing masks. We're just going to obsessively disinfect all of the surfaces around us. And they had a very funny mask experience. It was my last sort of Russian experience, sitting next to two people wearing masks, but they were sort of around their chins the whole time. And the women, so they were sort of sleeping and snoring and the masks were just... West Philly style, we call that. <laughs> yes, yes I, it, it's made me a bit nostalgic. But they were also eating these sort of like pork knuckles or some sort of some sort of knob of meat. And it was, the juices were just dripping down and collecting in their mask and then they'd eat the meat and then nap. And, and it was a, a very uncomfortable ride home. But anyway, so when we when we arrived back in the U.S., I brought up my email, and there was a message from the university saying, like, collect your things, especially your passport. Um, the authorities are going to be by in the morning. And it turned out that all of my colleagues were sent to, like, enforce quarantine at this hospital on the edge of town, which we uh, escaped by a day, not knowing that we had escaped it. Um, the head of our university tried to board a plane the next day and they took him off the plane and sent him to quarantine. Uh, so it was, it was, uh, an interesting end to what should have been, um, a year in Russia got cut short by the pandemic, but, uh, yeah, certainly the, one of the more unique travel experiences. The hospital on the edge of town, uh, that presumably has a locking mechanism if they're like enforcing quarantine. What do we think this has been used for before? <laughs> Well, we learned that one thing it had been used for is when they evacuated Russians from Wuhan, which, like, I think I haven't thought about Wuhan as the epicenter of the virus for, like, about four months until I just thought about that right now. Yeah, I feel like the epicenter they... is um, uh, Margaritaville right now. <laughs> yes. Or the White House. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Tumen had, I think, either the maybe the second case in Russia and... Yeah. But it's also where they brought the the Russians they took out of Wuhan to um and they put them at that hospital where Mike's colleagues were. But I, I mean it was really like I don't know. It was it was a really strange like decision making process I think deciding to leave because it felt like very 
difficult to have any idea whether there was any reason to leave or not and or like whether you know we were planning to stay till august that was like five months in the future like it seemed like if this is like two months long then or one month you know like be nice to still be here i can keep doing my work like we can do what we planned and you know we didn't really have any reason to go back it seemed like a crazy thing to do but it was like the fact that every day that um apropos of our conversation the everyday more travel routes were closing and it started to seem like like I think the reason really that I felt like we have to leave is I started to think like what if there's just no transatlantic flights like that seems possible and what if like what if there are no transatlantic flights for like multiple months then who gets to take the flight when they start again you know, like, it just suddenly seemed like maybe we actually can't get over the ocean. And, like, we have to get out of here at some point because our visas are going to expire. So. <laughs> Speaking of, like, people, Wuhan and, like, flashbacks to, like, before this was just, like, a widespread pandemic where, you know, basically everyone is resigned to, like, just living in abject fear and, and with limited capabilities for the next, you know, 18 months. Um, San Diego, where I'm based as a reporter, was where they were taking the U.S. Wuhan people um, and because they were taking them to uh, Pendleton, Camp Pendleton here. And I just remember because I work in a newsroom, they're flying them um, in uh, in, you know, these Air Force jets um, and, uh, you know, the pilots themselves have on the like total hazmat suits they're breathing out of their own little like respirators that they're carrying like they've got on gas masks when people are like when people were exiting the plane they were like you know 30 feet away from everybody else they moved directly into these tents and they were like just completely quarantined and like at the same time we're just like leaving the entire front door open (laughs) just like cool everybody come here like this is fine you know let's just keep spreading it (laughs) (laughs) and yeah I I just think it's so funny looking back on those like early reports of like how seriously they were taking it only because it was in only because it was like you know viewed as this Chinese problem and not an American problem the second it became an American problem it was like ah we'll just live with it fuck it and what did the uh, land border look like I mean Helen talked about our concern being not being able to cross the uh, Atlantic which is difficult to do um the land border is easier to cross in normal conditions, but what, what, what was what was going on down there? Yeah, no, I mean, basically because the U.S.-Mexico border is so politicized and, and such a kind of project of the, a bipartisan project of e- exclusion and kind of and violence for so many years, uh, they said they were doing a shutdown, but the way that U.S.-Canada has worked is a, a legit shutdown. You know, people do not go back and forth unless you have um, real reasons, you know, um, family emergencies, or, you know, you can't just be like, uh, I'm going to have a great weekend in Montreal, here you go. But what's happening is basically it gives kind of carte blanche to U.S. uh, border authorities to be as discriminatory as possible. And basically, oh, well, you don't fit the bill um, for you being able to come across, even though, because San Diego, Tijuana, and, you know, obviously El Paso Juarez and these other places along the border are, like, very special in the sense that people do commute back and forth every day to work. And if you were to do a hard shutdown, um, both economies would kind of end even more than they've already ended in this pandemic world. Um, But it basically allows CBP, Customs and Border Protection, just to make life as hard as possible based on, you know, how people look, how people, you know how brown you are, um, how indigenous you look, um, and basically all the American party people going down to TJ or going to the beaches down to surf, like, come on in, not a problem. Just wave, wave right through. So um, it's, it's, I think it's more accurate with how the U.S. is dealing with the pandemic, where it's just inequities, you know, magnified and, and kind of blown up um, in a way that doesn't actually, you know, help anyone besides... Um, that person who wants to go party and clubbing in a country that will still let them. Like, I was outside of a barber shop yesterday, um, not going in, I was waiting for food, but this guy was talking about how he had to get a haircut because he was going to Egypt next week, 
And I was like, oh, why are you going to Egypt? And he was like, oh, they're one of the few countries without travel restrictions. So I just Googled what place is still letting in Americans and Egypt showed up. And I was like, why? <laughs> like, why do you want to do this? And I was like, oh, that's cool, man. <laughs> like, that sucks for Egypt. <laughs> maybe, maybe, as a, maybe as a comic relief to the kind of real border stories that you're describing, um, I don't know if you remember or were aware that in the Northeast, so I'm from the West Coast originally, so I don't really think about states' borders as much as I do now on the East Coast. And um, there was like a lot of confusion around just the states' borders. So, for example, in Delaware, they'd said, if you were in Pennsylvania, you were going to get stopped. I'm sorry, if you had Pennsylvania plates, you were going to get stopped. And that somehow they were going to like uh, create some new authority to be able to stop plates, uh, cars with particular states plates, which clearly is like not in the purview of any um, uh, uh, state trooper. And yet, and so suddenly we've internalized this, this, both the guilt of it, and then this furious new law that may not be a law. So we're like, we illicitly went to the beach <laughs> in Delaware, feeling like terrible humans. And we like crossed the border in a way that I'd never even considered crossing the border into Delaware. I don't even think of that as an, like an existing border. And suddenly we're like, Keep it cool. We're in Delaware. <laughs> Don't do anything crazy. Well, that's like here when they um, they shut down over the July 4th weekend. San Diego kept its beaches open, but Orange County and um, L.A. County closed theirs. And of course, Arizona, which was having a huge spike, we were where they come to go to the beaches anyway. And all these people were so derisively speaking. They're like, oh, my God, everybody from L.A. and Orange County and Arizona, they're all going to come here. Like, they're out of control. And I'm like, oh, God, you like... As if any of you have like a leg to stand on talking about like bad behavior at beaches and like crowding and not respecting, quote unquote, the virus. Um, yeah, we've become much more kind of aware of counties. And I, I think that's a bad thing. I think we should be less aware of counties because people are now like learning who their supervisors are so they, they could go and yell at them about mask requirements. Mm-hmm. Well, in um, in Huntington Beach, I know the mayor of Huntington Beach, so my parents are in county, uh, was actually participating in the protest against, against mask requirements. requirements. Oh, yeah. Who was he protesting to? I don't know himself. Oh, no, Ch uh, Chancellor, yeah, Chancellor Newsom. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. Which, you know, fair. <laughs> like, go, <Yeah>. go nuts. <laughs> um, okay, so... In terms of, you know, borders, everything has gotten a bit insane and the world has gotten smaller, especially for Americans, because we can't freaking leave um, unless we're going on a wonderful uh, day trip to either Mexico or Egypt. Um, or the UK. Or the, so can we go to the UK? That's okay? Yes. And we can, I think, go to Albania. Some friends of ours were looking, on, it was like a back way into the EU. <laughs> There's some... <laughs> <laughs> you end up in the middle of like the uh, reignited uh yes you're like oh azerbaijan this is my entry point <laughs> well there's speculation about whether if you go to the uk then because i think the uk i might be wrong about this but the uk ireland border is still open in a way that it's not with the rest of the eu that you could like then go to ireland and then you'd be in the eu so then you could just you know hang out there <laughs> You go to different places. <laughs> and just travel around during a pandemic. <laughs> oh, I love to go to this bar, this classic bar, or this museum, both of which ha like have limited entrance and hate us being here. Um, so with the world on lockdown got us thinking about travel writing. And um, obviously you're, you guys are people who have thought a lot about writing and traveling. Um, and so I thought this would be a good time just to each have a turn to talk about uh, writers of travel that we admire. And, um, you know, basically this is something where the target is always moving on their politics, um, at, given, you know, basically their, their time period. It could be real freaking outdated. Um, it could be really messed up. And I think a lot of travel writing does need, you know, a good amount of either defending or, you know, product of their timing or just outright castigation. So I'll start with Nabil. Appearance by 
Mike and Helen's new cat. Um, I'll start with Nabil. Who is a travel writer you admire, and where do the pilot, where do their politics currently lie in in this moment of kind of reconsideration of of countries' relationships with one another? Um, you know, the person that first comes to mind is actually Jan Morris, and I think that her bizarre and very long-lived life. <laughs> Uh, puts her in a very peculiar spot because not to suggest that her politics are, uh, um, uh, you know, are not subject to um, uh, sort of interrogation in some way. But to be fair, uh, she began writing as um, the a reporter that went along with uh, Edmund Hillary for the Everest Report, uh, and at that at that point, they were they were um, writing under the name James Morris. And in the like 70s, you know, had this uh, reassignment surgery in Morocco uh, and then continued to write all these blockbuster travel writing, uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, book length sort of travel um, uh, experiences, particularly in in Venice. And they were sort of middle of the road and quite popular. There was this period where she wrote this very strange pay-on to like Pax Britannica. (laughs) It was not quite a... Uh, a, a song of empire, but it was like a very peculiar <laughs> note that was being struck. Um, but the book I'm going to really, that I always go to is the one called Letters from Hav, which was a made up book. It was actually her only novel where um, it's it's maybe roughly based on Trieste, which is kind of in the kind of the armpit of, of um, uh, Eastern Europe and Italy. And What's so lovely about that book is it just sort of like takes away the actual placidness and really just thinks about the, the trace of empire. So like, what is a place that is, uh, you know, Ottoman, uh, Roman, and uh, uh, Central Asian? And just like, what does that look like as a as a made up entity? And I just like, it's like so good. It has all the tropes and everything, of the sentence structures and the Sort of the narrative beats of travel writing, but for a place that like literally doesn't doesn't exist. Anyway, I'm going off on tangent, but I I I think that book is really lovely, and particularly when we're thinking about imaginary places, I um I have uh, reconsidered that place. Have you been to Eastern Siberia lately? Because it does have maybe vibes of that like interesting kind of mix that you were describing. I'm thinking of like um. Oh, well, you guys could correct me if I'm wrong, but like Irkutsk has weird, complete um, culture kind of like meld, uh, but completely like 21st century in that it was totally remade um, in to make sure that whoever gains the sphere of influence would feel comfortable. So be it like, uh, you know, Russia, China or like, um, you know, Ottoman, <laughs> like Korea, it's yeah. Korea. Yeah, it's a total, total weird spot. Like totally, like super not Russia. I mean, very Russian, but like you look around, and you're like, um, this is like there's a lot of Chinese money at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I I'm gonna take this in a very different direction. Uh, I so Helen Helen and I got to do some traveling. Uh, I more than her because I had some funds from my university and it was sort of the end of a very decadent period that we're not going to be able to exist in for a while where I was just like, I went to Bratislava in Vienna on some sort of concocted trip where I presented at a conference. Uh, Helen and I went to Naples in, in, in uh, January. Um, And it is this, you know, it's a perfect expression of a kind of like privilege where you feel that the world is at your disposal. You can go wherever you want. And this made me think about uh, two books. One is Errol Flynn's autobiography, My Wicked, Wicked Ways, uh, which is one of my favorite books. It's a totally trashy read, but it's so fun and funny. And the other one is what I'm reading right now is this this George Jones book called I Live to Tell It All. Um, And in both cases, you have these total, you know, fabulists. Uh, There's a bit of a flair in Flynn's case. So he was born in Australia, ran away from home. And then kind of in his telling took to the road It included him becoming essentially a slave trader in New Guinea, uh, 
you know, having a successful cockfighting run in Macau or somewhere in South Pacific and being chased, you know, under threat of his life after they figured out that he was uh, putting a little poison on the on the beak of his of his <laughs> of his rooster. And he has various run-ins with people in opium dens, and he's just sort of all over the place having these adventures. And it's very similar with George Jones. The section I was just reading is he was supposed to go tour uh, Northern Ireland with his band. Uh, he learned about um, the political situation there and said, no way. So he hid in Alabama with his friends so we could just go drink there. And his manager went to go try and collect him, brought kind of like a posse <laughs> to find him, and George Jones found out about this and led them on sort of a manhunt across the South where he was camping in the woods. And uh, this is completely ridiculous events when these come like every several pages in the book. But I was thinking about the, these, yeah, these fabulous who led these lives of, you know, extreme interests because they were celebrities and were fabulously wealthy because of it. And the globe is there as just another place for them to, you know, spin a tale. And uh, yeah. And I, I wonder what the, what the future of that kind of writing is going to be. I mean, it seems like it's already passed in some ways because the politics is quite abhorrent um, in both cases. And it's a real arrogant way to think about travel writing. But um, in these moments, we need to find some levity. And one way to find it is to read these like completely insane, excessive, fabulous uh, accounts from, from rogues like Errol Flynn and George Jones. We need the Oasis late 90s world tour travelogue um, with like competing fabulous versions of what exactly happened between Noel and Liam. Just like completely different tours, but apparently they were both there. Um, and I think that'll set race relations back a good. <laughs> but in the hands of a sensitive novelist, that's a great conceit. <laughs> well, I can pick up this thread because I thinking about this, um, I mean, I, I was also thinking like Mike about the kind of what feels like bygone days of uh, a lot of like university sponsored travel for, I mean, in my case, for like academic work. And if I think about like what travel writing is, has been particularly I don't know if important or just notable for me, it's, it's kind of inseparable from the fact that I've spent like a, most of my adult life studying another country, um, Russia. And, and so like, I think the kinds of travel writing I've read has been like just other people who beca became like interested in Russia for whatever reason. And, like, for example, Elif Batuman's um, memoir, The Possessed, from, like, 2010 or around there, I think, is when that book came out. And, yeah, <laughs> actually, yeah, I think I, I, I interviewed her. It was one of the very first things that I did for a full stop, so full circle. But, um, I mean, I was, like, obsessed with that book because it's... Um, because it's following her kind of just curiosity about this place and the strange encounters that it leads her to have and like the sort of hilarity of various kinds of cultural misunderstanding and, you know, trying to figure out how to organize your life in a foreign country. And I mean, all like pretty standard travel writing fare, I think, just with like a particularly literary bent where it's also all interwoven with her kind of reading of novels and developing a relationship with the literature of this place. And um, so like, I mean, I read that book after having spent a year living in a city in central Siberia. <laughs> Not west, not east, right, right there in the middle, and, um, and I and I really related to it, but I think, um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think it's like, okay, so I think thinking about like why do people read travel writing? Maybe on the one hand, they read it to like see to like imagine being in another place or 
Um, but like maybe to like experience that sense of kind of confusion or wonder or like, you know, to like laugh at something strange or uh, gawk at something, you know, all of these different kind of ways of relating to encountering some unknown place and culture. And, um, and I think, so I guess when I think about travel writing, I think like, well, what it, I mean, it's also a strange thing to spend your life studying a culture that's not your own and to kind of just like commit to that long term, <laughs> you know? And so to, to have it not, like, if you think of travel writing, I think it's like, well, I, I go all kinds of places. I travel. I go to Africa and Asia and Europe, maybe Antarctica, like all kinds of places. Um, and I don't know, is it travel if you're like developing a relationship with a place or you're developing a like profession based on a relationship with that place? And you know, and then in like these new strange conditions that we're in, like, I don't know when I can go back and keep working in Russia or, you know, like, like on the one hand, these were these like gravy days of like just cheap flights and like assumption of like access to foreign lands without a lot of money, without a lot of planning, without a lot of time spent traveling. But on the other hand, it did make it possible to develop these like relationships and kind of connections and and just knowledge about about other places that, um, you know, I like. I really hope I can go back to Russia before too long. <laughs> well, I, I think what's interesting, you know, about what you know you brought up about this kind of devotion to to one place as opposed to right the idea like the the Paul Thoreau, if I'm getting the right Thoreau here, um, you know, I'm going to go to a million places and here's my impressions of each and like that type of travel writing. And then there was this like corrective, which is I'm going to stay at this one place and I'm really going to go deep and I'm really going to understand it. And that's going to be something of a value that I'm adding to my writing is that I've spent so much time. You can't say that I've, I'm, I'm just a voyeur or like I'm just parachuting in and getting out and getting things wrong. Um, you know, again, in the journalism world, like we parachute nonstop. We just are, are totally, um, you know, amplify misconceptions that occur if you um, just spend three days at a place talking to the people who talk the loudest. Um, so I feel like there was a move to as like part of a corrective. And if I can transition to the person I wanted to talk about, um, bring up, it's Bill Buford, who um, put out his new book, Dirt, this year about becoming a French chef. And this was after he um, had done his last book about becoming um, an Italian chef, partly in Manhattan and, and partly in Italy. Um, and I feel, you know, he founded, co-founded Granta, right? Which is like kind of this huge internationalist post-Cold War literary establishment that's like where travel writing is fundamental to it and has all these like huge names that are, you know, what we consider to be, um, you know, the, the modern travel writer kind of like all-star team. Uh, and his first book, which I like loved, was Among the Thugs that was about soccer hooligans in England, where, yeah, he, he like, did the work and spent, you know, a ungodly amount of time with soccer hooligans and, like, kind of figured them out as much as there's any way to figure them out. But he wasn't like, I, like, became the soccer hooligan. You know, it wasn't like, I will become this sociopath who, you know, this <laughs> violent racist sociopath in order to understand them. It was, oh, no... I got it. Um, these guys, there's no meaning. They're just raging to rage because they they resent the fact that, I don't know, they're union electricians and not, um, you know, heroic like a soccer player, you know? Um, and then kind of his descent into like cook it, food writing, or not descent, but like his shift into that is like, I'm going to spend 10 years 
learning how to like be to to be passed off as you know this expert in fact like to the point where i will i will pride myself on serving a dish to somebody and they won't know that this american made it they'll just assume that it was you know this bona fide french or italian chef and i think that was a big shift in kind of travel writing of like becoming aware that just like bopping in and bopping out is going to give you this kind of blowback as opposed to just um you know there's a whole genre now of like really committing and like i got so deep i became i i became a, a ski dog a you know ski sled captain or dog sled captain like that's what i did and you know um or i became i i'm now the greatest rubik's cube player in the world and i'm gonna write you know and this was my quest um and i like that's un, like maybe more tenable politically but kind of less enjoyable because ultimately when you get that granular it's like not interesting <laughs> that's been my take uh, and especially his new book was i was you know really bored for long stretches because i think he he's just too deep into that world now that he forgets that he's writing for for non-chefs well may i ask about one like a maybe a third take um so i think this is totally off kilter but uh, i'm teaching this class right now experimental nonfiction, but i've I forced everyone to read Matsuo Basho. So we're reading 1689, you know, uh, uh, Zen poet um, walking around uh, the narrow road to the interior. He goes to the North Country. And one thing that struck me particularly in COVID times is like, uh, he's constantly like exclaiming, that's the rock, that's the pond, you know, that's the tree, right? So each of these things have been marked in some way by classical Chinese or other poets. Um, and then, you know, I mentioned Jan Morris earlier, and there was like maybe a, not a global phenomenon, but there was like a, a generation of, of, of uh, uh, certainly British and potentially, you know, uh, uh, Commonwealth readers who would think of Venice and they would think of Jan Morris as having like made some kind of like signposts and sort of like literary intervention so that you would like uh, have some sort of, a, I don't know, an imaginary orientation towards this place. And I wonder if there's like room for that. So I'm thinking as the opposite of that, it's like, I don't know, Pico Ayer or, or, or maybe even what you're describing, the, the sort of eat, pray, love effect in some ways. Not, I mean, that, that's, 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 it's I'm own sorry, thing. that's missing. <laughs> right. it's, it's, it's its own thing, but there was this element of like, I'm going to like leave my life and transcend into a different kind of, uh, a kind of identity. And where am I going with this? I was just curious about that, particularly in the case of, you know, uh, you know, making sort of these circumscribed journeys and places that have been well trod as being the source of travel writing. And then in the last like post-world period, post-war period, travel writing is going elsewhere, places that have not yet been marked. I don't know, this is mm -hmm. something that- Or it makes me think of, I don't know, like leaving the Atocha station or something where you go to those places that have been marked, but now it's a way for you to work through your self-loathing and come to like a deeper uh, self-understanding that way. Which, as uh, like going to these European places in particular, like we went to Pompeii and you know these big tourist hotspots, it there is that like weird dark shadow of the of the like great places of the world that were once used to I don't know spur a sense of wonder and uh, and greatness and fullness are now these places that are also attended by just like that kind of scummy feeling of being a tourist, you know, like the least self-aware kind of person you could possibly be. One, uh, one, uh, I'm sorry, I'm visible. Um, I was just thinking one other book that, um, uh, I think, a, a tr it's, I think it counts as travel writing, but it kind of re reflects what you're describing is Jamaica Kincaid's short book, A Small Place, where it's like, she's, she's, I mean, in some ways, she's like self-alienated, so she's describing Antigua, uh, but she's also like talking about this emergent tourism industry in this way. I mean, she's trying to claim both subjectivities in a certain way. It's it's kind of interesting. I think the writing's beautiful, but it's both scathing, but also does this sort of, you know, self-alienating move. I think that is, uh, you can't get away from it anymore. Yeah, I guess that makes me think. Like, I don't know. I I really haven't read a lot of like contemporary travel writing but I wonder to it seems like if you were going to write about going to places like 
like Pompeii or like the pyramids in Egypt or, you know, the, the industry that's built up around those kinds of sites and the way that going there means like navigating this like really insane web of like things that people are going to try and get you to buy and like, uh, you know, kind of manufactured authentic experiences like I'll guide you on a horse ride at dawn around the pyramids or whatever it is. Like, I mean, I guess I just think of travel writing as really being about at least describing something that seems like an authentic experience of like another culture or a place or like, or like a profession or something, right? Rather than describing the like actual experience of just trying to like have a vacation and like see a great site um because like i feel like i really dislike the idea that like the pyramids are a, are a tourist trap you know I think they're like sublime i mean they're completely extraordinary things i i mean like they're well i lived for some period of time in the vicinity of the pyramids and i never got tired of seeing them or felt like they weren't just like completely extraordinary things and i feel like before that i always felt like i want to see the pyramids someday in my life because like what the hell are those things and how do they even exist and like how, how do you like have that experience of wonder when you're also like you know, we're going to drive the taxi up to the spot, but we're going to lock the doors because people are going to come like rushing at you, trying to stop you from getting up there so that they can get you out of the taxi cab. And if they can, they might even open the door and pull you out so that they can like take you on a guided tour of the, like the, the tourist industry there is like so intense. And I mean, yeah, that's where I feel like there's a split between, right. And there was this intentional split by travel writers between tourism and travel writing, right? It was like, I'm not going to go to the pyramids because that's tourism. I'm going to show you something else. But you're totally right. You're totally like signing off on the sublime of just being like, there's a history here that has now just become so intertwined with with tourism and the story that we tell of, of this place. And that also gets me thinking of as the stories and the histories that we tell of different places change, you know, what becomes the things that, that the outside viewer is interested in, right? Like I, I, I think a lot about in South America, you know, the whole last 70 years have been um, such an obscured history, right? Like Americans have no, no fucking clue what happened in, in South America. And, and, and in a hopeful, maybe hopeful idea, Americans are beginning to get their head around their deep involvement in, in basically, you know, post-World War II and obviously before, but especially every monumental kind of historical thing and, and tragedy that happened in, in Latin and South America or Latin America. So I, I think like the way we relate to those places changes with what history we emphasize. Um, and that's, interesting for travel writers in the in the sense of basically they're making you know these decisions about what is going to be the focal point of of their interaction is it going to be cuisine and that's how i'm going to talk about history or is it going to be you know the dirty war and that's how i'm going to talk about you know these countries or is it going to be dance and i'll talk about tango and you know they're making these decisions as as all of these entryways um, and I think, especially now, as the world uh, becomes more constricted, and I think you're absolutely right, that we're like going to be looking back at this time of cheap travel, easy passports, this like 30-year post-Soviet Union period of just like, um, you know, essentially to the privileged open borders, um, that, that we're going to be looking back at it different. So I guess, you know, my question to kind of round us out here is, you know, what histories are going to be emphasized moving forward and what is basically the future look like in a much more circumscribed world because no matter how the pandemic resolves itself like the way things were heading anyway like this shit's over <laughs> you know like this is this is just not gonna th this free and cheap transport between places is just not going to be as easy as it was Nabil, i i don't want to put you on the spot but uh 
given some of the, you've been thinking a lot about travel writing and thinking about it in terms not only of like literature, as you were talking about with Jan Morris before, but also like your fam- understanding your family's history and your this like um, this impulse to collect images or collect stories or to uh, build a kind of a kind of story. I don't know for oneself out of a, a desire for travel. Um, and I'm not going to be able to round that into a question because this will have to be edited. <laughs> uh, but but thinking about the future of travel writing, you, you've been thinking about travel writing very very broadly, you know, um, from personal accounts to more reputable literary accounts to disreputable places like I don't know Yelp or uh, TripAdvisor or things like that. Um, do any of these point towards a new shape of travel writing that's discernible or um, as Max said, will this kind of story only become understandable sort of retrospectively when we realize what kinds of things we were seeking, the shape of experience we were trying to account for? Uh, you know, even in the way that we're describing it, uh, and I, you know, I think we're t- talking it pretty broadly, we're talking about uh, borders, we're talking about politics, but there is some sense, still some sense of apprehension that we are apprehending a place. And so um, the, where I'm going with that is I read a book recently. I wouldn't totally recommend it unless you're really interested in travel. <laughs> it's called Overbooked, Elizabeth Becker. It's like an NPR uh, reporter. And uh, she basically is, is trying to create some sort of like global scene for contemporary tourism industry. And so going to these major conferences and, and thinking more broadly about the tourism industry and how... Um, it's actually about managing it, or there are stories that are literally being like there are focus groups and uh, uh, you know very highly systematized ways in which uh, you know indigeneity is coming together, sort of saying like what do we want to present ourselves and what do other people want from this tourism experience and how do we manage it in such a way? Um, and it is very confusing, right? Because it goes against so much of what I think, uh, based what I'm hearing from our conversations, what we kind of implicitly understand to be travel. Um, but also it's kind of interesting in this weird neoliberal capitalist way of these, uh, you know, sort of emerging tourism industries, whether it's in Peru or in um, uh, 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 Laos and Cambodia or, or in, in France, uh, and thinking of them as, um, as actually like active agents in our experience which I think is actually kind of interesting and weird and maybe never explored. Um, and so, uh, you know, and, you know, I still think that there's this element of like, we are going out there and doing this thing, whereas like a, like a significant portion of all jobs on earth are tourist related. So it's no longer just like a thing one goes out to. It's actually like part of a systemic global economy in a way that's a broader and deeper and stranger story than I think is often told. Does that answer your question? I don't know. Well, I feel like that in some ways that's like, so like that related to that is what I was trying to think about with like thinking about the pyramids that like the reality of going to the pyramids is like dealing with this tourist infrastructure. And on the one hand, and I guess like part of the whole appeal of travel is like the idea of, you know, well, being someplace like without mediation, you know, and I feel, and it's, you know, or whatever, like having that kind of um, feeling that you're just encountering something, or um, if you're going to write about it, like writing about it in that way, or like classically, that's kind of what I think about it. But like, as you're saying, like in reality, or whatever, you know, I mean, you're never just sort of gonna go feel what it feels like to be someone who like lives in some village in some country that you've never been to before and your presence in that place is going to like reorganize that society in some way even like um if it's not part of a stream of people like you coming to be in those villages but if it is part of a stream of people like you coming to be in those villages then right like a whole economy is going to develop around that presence 
And so then it seems like, well, the only way to do that responsibly is to like think about what system, what economy you're participating in and how and how it affects the place that you're in rather than, I guess, like continually trying to kind of get out of whatever structures are in place to like help you experience one place or another. Yeah, I'm thinking a lot about the the Mayan train that's been proposed by the Mexican president uh, to to go connect all these ancient Mayan sites in the Yucatan Peninsula and how it's this like massive state project that um, has like serious local um, uh, concerns about it that basically like you are destroying a lot of the cultural sites while you're building this train. Um, and you're destroying a lot of like, you know, natural habitat that is actually part of that of that cultural heritage that's there. Um, and, you know, I'm seeing this right now along the border where they're building the border wall along these um, uh, the this is happening in the Arizona, too, but in, in San Diego County with the Kumaye people who basically straddle the border. They, they live on both sides of the border and the border wall is just, you know, absolutely destroying um, this this habitat and their cultural heritage sites, including burial sites. But what I'm kind of getting at is basically that you have these engineering feats that are meant to call attention to that location while totally destroying what made that location unique to most people. So like the borderlands are unique because they are a totally like outrageous um diverse ecological setting and also one that's culturally diverse going back you know centuries and the same i'm thinking with the you know what's going on in the the yucatan um it's just interesting because it's again like the border wall itself is a tourist destination you're trying to call it you know that's what it is <laughs> that, that's like it because it doesn't work so obviously what does it do it's meant to be have attention called to it um so I, I don't know. It's it's interesting to think of these state projects that are meant to to, quote unquote, boost local economy that, you know, is banking on the idea of these locations, but is is destroying it in the meantime um, and has very little buy in from from local population. So what Nabil was saying also in terms of like having, you know, indigenous communities coming up with how they want to be presented, it's like, OK, well, um, a lot of times that's that's something that the state is kind of forcing on them and being like, what do you guys, you know, you don't have a choice here. How do you want to be presented? So how do we wrap this up? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. Um, I could see a, a, like a, a subgenre of confessional who did travel during yes. COVID. Uh, uh, you know, I have been haunted by those beautiful images of, you know, those people who did fly really early on, you know, in March, April, where they're just like the only person on the airplane. <laughs> I'm sure you've seen that, the, the Instagram account of that. Um, and so I wonder if there'll be some, some sort of confessional shameful travel where maybe, maybe by, you know, a, a, a pen name, no one would actually admit to it. But That's so interesting to make travel writing like an illicit genre again. Because it's <laughs> demonstrating that you've you've broken the rules, <laughs> or or uh, the that teen or like really young dude who was backpacking and then figured out that uh, after both those Malaysian airliners crashed, that like tickets were super cheap on Malaysian Air and was just flying everywhere in them, and he was like, ah, I got another like total cabin to myself once again, amazing, <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean I. I feel like uh, when I when I'm teaching students, teaching a university, despite the fact that students are incredibly privileged and have the ability to become very aware of the world, they're amazingly uh, ignorant of of history, but also what life looks like on the ground in many places in the world. And I think travel writing would be a great of great use to them. Um, and I, I wonder, well, it makes me think that maybe I, we're also in the situation of, not to, not to malign my students at all, but uh, where our, our, our imagination, I, I feel, is becoming in some ways more constricted by the internet or by, I don't know, like our inability to make use of the great 
variety of accounts that we could avail ourselves towards. So it makes me think that there is going to be a lot of travel writing written about this period of people who were in motion and who were accessing places that we can't imagine because we've been sort of habituated to turn them into dark spots that we can't access because we're following health protocols or we imagine things being more shut down than they are. Um, I feel like there are going to be some interesting stories to be told about how movement was actually still quite present and sort of moving in interesting ways like a you know a river does when it runs into some sort of some sort of obstruction so what i would look forward to retrospectively are accounts of daily life that i'm having trouble imagining because i'm falling into the same kind of trap that our media environment and you know the internet sort of causes us all to fall into like it's something that we didn't actually talk about at all, which I feel like actually is a huge part of maybe not travel writing, but like travel culture kind of prior to COVID is like Instagram and just social media, right? And the way that actually like a lot of people are like kind of going to places to get like a shot that's like a well-known shot that, you know, that's like a huge phenomenon. And it's even something that I've talked to people who like do sort of contemporary art stuff that that's a lot of how like a lot of um, museum shows are really organized in that way now towards, you know, having some space that's Instagrammable because that will get people to come. And like, I don't know. I mean, that's. Well, I mean, I think I think you're you're totally right about like the Instagram side of things. And, and to Michael's point, I'm like. I'm right now I like doom scroll on Twitter and I doom scroll on Instagram of like who on earth is like going to weddings and stuff or like I'm at a resort or I'm at a pool and everyone is around me. I mean, you know, I follow some people from high school who became cops and they every weekend are having huge parties that are just other them and other cops because they're not taking this seriously at all. Um, and like, I'm like, okay, so this is still happening. People, like, there is this alternate world that's probably not even the alternate at this point where all of this stuff is still going on. Like, I, I rode through Las Vegas a few weeks ago, and that was dark, man. <laughs> like, you know, that the place was packed, and people were just, like, on vacation and, like, not going not gonna to stop. So I guess what, what would be interesting would be, like, a, a history of these illicit but not very illicit vacations of that, like who on earth are taking these? And like, I'm less interested in why they're doing it as opposed to like, basically how we've, we failed to stop that. <laughs> yeah, my cousin was in, um, uh, this is not very literary, but my cousin lives in Dubai and you know, we were doing a family Zoom and she was like at a poolside bar. <laughs> it was a crowd and uh, because the, you know, national, restrictions are pretty high. I'm, I'm, I'm convinced it's actually not that unsafe because no one can actually go in or leave. Uh, and I was just so stunned to consider a country that was operating as per usual, at least at her class, you know, and, and you know, given her job and, and her apartment and everything like that, that I was just like, oh, I forgot what that even looks like. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. This doesn't really have anything to do with what you're talking about, but it's hap that's like the happening here more than I think we like realize. Like, we went to Delaware this weekend, and there's just restaurants packed with people, and they're just normal people. Like, it doesn't seem like an act of defiance, or just seems like I don't know. Just like stop to get like Vietnamese food in a strip mall on our way back and there's just like a bunch of people in there just eating food in there like you know and it's just like wh like why are you doing that like it's you're having your lunch on a like just take it home I mean what is the experience you're having at this restaurant but that I don't know I don't I feel like this probably shouldn't even go to the podcast but it like I just <laughs> There's something I really, there's some like real failure, I feel like in those scenes, because it seems to me like what I see there is like, there's just like a message that hasn't gone, gotten across 
because but like because like these places are just open actually well they're there to understandable they're there to write about it yeah (laughs) we can we can only hope yeah no as full stop author uh, jacob Backrack put it there's so many people willing to die for the bad food like let me get the (laughs) shitty brunch i'm fucking ready (laughs) take me lord Um, cool. Well, this seems like a good place to wrap it up. This has been a fun full stop gab fest, everyone. Thanks for participating. Again, happy birthday, Helen. We did it. We talked about travel writing. Uh, I want to thank Nabil, uh, Helen, and Mike for joining us. Thank you for listening to the Full Stop Podcast. You can support Full Stop at patreon.com backslash fullstopmag. And as always, find a ton of reviews, essays, interviews, and weird blog posts at www.full-stop.net. We're so glad to have you joining us on this journey, even if, for the time being, we're all just staying in exactly the same place. We'll see you next time.